Welcome to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Ellen Umansky, an editor at Tablet, and I'll be your host for today. Bruce J. Friedman has been writing for more than half a century across different genres and mediums. He's the author of eight novels, including Stern and A Mother's Kisses. He's also written several hit plays and a number of memorable screenplays like Stir Crazy and Splash. That's not to mention all the short stories he's written through the years, some of which have been made into films, too. Now he's written a memoir called Lucky Bruce that's packed with entertaining stories about his life, from the Depression-era childhood in the Bronx to his stints in Hollywood and among New York's literary circles. Friedman is the first to admit that he's a shameless name-dropper, but the stories he tells about Mario Puzo, Joseph Heller, Warren Beatty, Natalie Wood, and many, many others are so spot-on and often so darkly funny that we forgive him. He's also a self-effacing guy, which helps too. Now, I had the opportunity to work with Friedman when he wrote some pieces for Tablet's predecessor, Nextbook.org, a few years ago. It's a pleasure to be meeting up with him again today here in the studio. Bruce J. Friedman, welcome to Vox Tablet. Uh, thank you. Uh, I didn't realize I was touchy, but maybe I am a little. Uh, the part about me being a the first to admit that I'm a shameless name dropper, maybe I'm the third to admit. <laughs> but You'd... the point being, I don't know how to write this book uh, without mentioning uh, some of the people I talk about. You know, Mrs. Perlman, who lives three apartments away, is a fine human being, but she's simply not as fascinating as Joseph Heller, you know, for example. So, ergo, the name dropping. That's fair enough. Um, Bruce, your first piece for Next Book was called A Door Opens and describes your sudden entry into literary circles when at age 32, your novel Stern was published. That novel, which is very, very funny, was a breakthrough for you. Can you describe the novel for our listeners who haven't read it? Not really. Uh, <laughs> Come on. Oh, Give us uh, a little something. It seems to be about a Jewish man, not quite middle-aged, who moves to a foreign country, which is essentially a, a suburb. It's the first time he's been away from the Bronx, and he's cut off. Um, and his wife has an episode with a seemingly anti-Semitic, not even seemingly, a neighbor who makes a remark. She falls. Uh, the way she tells the story, uh, uh, you know, her dress flies up and she's exposed. And that um, more than upsets him. Uh, and uh, it's how he uh, fails to deal with it and ultimately... Uh, does deal with it. Just to interject, she's exposed because she's not wearing underpants, correct? Right. Okay. Well, so she says. We, you know, it's never really, she's fully capable of having exaggerated that moment. Uh, I don't know. I read somewhere that it was called the first Freudian novel. What do you make of that? Well, Stanley Edgar Hyman, who was a noted critic at the time, called it that. And for some reason, the book appealed to uh, psychiatrists. Um, patients would come in, I was told, and after three years of therapy, slapped the book down on the doctor's desk and said, forget everything I said, this is how I feel. Um, one psychiatrist, I remember his name, Dr. K, in Great Neck, made a pilgrimage to my home, and with tears in his eyes, he said, you're understanding 
of, uh, of the male abortion fantasy, for example. He says, it's beyond belief. How could you possibly, you know, have absorbed so much information about this? You know, you know. well, the truth is I knew nothing about this, you know. I mean, <laughs> I glanced at Kraft Ebbing the way we all did looking for naughty uh, uh, passages, but I had no contact at all with the literature. In fact, just recently, there's a psychiatrist who, well, he's the head of Bellevue Psychiatric, asked me if I wanted a, an award. And I said, well, what for? He said, well, you know more than we do about the human condition. So I said, uh, well, do I get a thousand bucks out of this? <laughs> and he said, no, no, we can't do that. So I said, well, what do I need an award for? <laughs> but um, he uh, finds a lot in my uh, stories. And indeed, the patient-psychiatrist uh, relationship continues to fascinate me. And why, why do you think it is so fascinating to well, you? Well, it's my subject. You know, it's the uh, behavior is really my subject. If anybody actually reads my books, they'll never find a description of uh, of this room, for example. You, you know, or or the uh, or the trees and the flowers. It's all about the interrelationship between people and the quirkiness of their uh, behavior, and going as deep as I can uh, into that. That's all I know about, uh, if I know that much. Um, so you grew up in the Bronx in the 1930s. Um, and in your memoir, you write about how, as a kid, you slept on a chair in the kitchen. And your sister, and I still don't really understand how this works, slept in a bookcase on a cot. Um, you wrote, you'd think that someone born in the thick of the Great Depression would have a sad story to tell, but mine isn't one of them. So what was your story then? Uh, well, it didn't seem particularly unusual. There were four of us living in a small apartment. My parents slept in the bedroom, so where were they going to put us? Um, so there was a bookcase uh, by day, and it opened up, and uh, there was a folding bed. Like, so, a, like a Murphy's bed? Yes, pretty okay. much. Okay. Well, maybe it was standalone. I'm not sure. But that was pulled out, and my sister slept there. And then the way the Bronx apartments were, there was a kitchen and a tiny kitchenette or, or uh, attached to it with a little table, which was pushed aside, and there was a chair. Uh, and that's where I slept. Uh, I'm, well, this is the writer at work. I didn't sleep in a sitting position. I mean, it did pull out and resemble something like a, uh, like a bed. And I didn't think there was anything particularly unusual about it, you, you know. My mother kept insisting that I had my own room. <laughs> She'd come in, start cooking some veal chops or whatever, uh, and say, you've got your I'm not here, you know. Uh, pay no attention. I'm not here. You have your own room. And so I had my own room. That was my, that was my room. That's a good, that's a good spin. I, I like that spin. Um, but can you tell me a little bit more about your childhood and what it was like growing up in the Bronx then? Well, uh, the early part was the um, the were the depression years, although I wasn't aware of it particularly. We were, I guess, have to be classified as poor or at least lower middle class. 
But I had no sense of it because, once again, my mother kept telling me how fortunate I was. The particular line was, uh, if I ever dared to make a complaint about something, she said there are boys who would give their eye teeth to be in your situation. And I never stopped to think, who are these boys? I mean, <laughs> are they, do they live in Somalia someplace? Uh, but I was a sort of happy guy. I had, uh, for one thing, how could you be poor when you lived within walking distance of two stadiums, the Polo Grounds then where the Giants played and the Yankee Stadium, which was pretty much a stone's throw away? That made me feel rich. I had all these T-shirts. That made me feel rich. And I had the street and a thousand friends. And um, I was a combination of happy-go-lucky and a little depressed here, here, here and there. And I had the movie theaters, you know. And we had radio. And we had the public library. And, of course, the schools were, I didn't realize how good they were. But they gave you a huge advantage over everyone else because the women who couldn't really find another place for themselves in the culture uh, became school teachers, many of them, and they were incredible. I can still point to obscure places on the map because of a geography teacher who, who made me learn where the Kamchatka Peninsula is. How many people know where that peninsula is anyway? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the schools were so good that when I went out to Missouri University, it's another story, um, I was sort of almost like a senior there because all they were had learned in high school was um, how to fix cars and how to shine their shoes. <laughs> And whatever. They were more socially advanced. They actually knew how to speak to women, uh, where I was become strangulated. I didn't know how to have a conversation with a woman that wasn't rehearsed. Uh, is that what it was like growing up in the Bronx? It sounds like it gives, gives, me a, gives me a good idea. But I actually wanted to ask you also about your parents, who come off as great characters in the memoir. Um, your father, who is a, as you refer to him, an undergarment salesman, and your mother, who seems to have been very um, fashionable and highly opinionated. Um, I'm wondering what they made of your chosen career as a writer. Well, my mother, to the end, um, uh, thought that I'd made a mistake in not going into uh, theatrical public relations. She thought that's where the that's where the money is. Really? <laughs> of all things? Of all that's things. That's where the money is. Well, she was a theater uh, bug. Uh, she uh, really did love the theater like nobody else loved the theater. My father was silent on the subject, and somehow growing up, there was this awful feeling that I, and frightening feeling that I would have to work in the stock room of the garment center uh, where he worked in his company. Uh, where he was um, a subordinate figure, but maybe he might be able to shoehorn me in to the stockroom. And it was scary. First of all, I didn't think I'd, I'd be any good at it. You know, I didn't know what they did in there except pile things up. I was afraid of failing as a stockroom person. So you became a writer instead. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I became a writer. And even... Uh, my mother never really gave me any points for that. When I had th this uh, 
play Scuba Dooba, which miraculously became a hit. It was the first time I'd ever tried one. Um, and I call, what do you do when uh, you call your mother for a pat on the head? What do you think, Mom? And she said, it's in the memoir, I could not take my eyes off that boy, <laughs> meaning the main actor. I said, yeah, Mom, but you know he wasn't reading the dictionary. You know, Somebody had to actually said that boy was something. And that boy was Jerry. And, but, and she Orbach, was onto right? something because the boy was Jerry Orbach, and he was brilliant. And who knows, the play might, might not have succeeded without him. You know. um, I also wanted to ask, when you were first starting out as a writer, you worked as an editor um, running a collection of men's magazines Correct. with some great titles. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that and also about um, someone I know you consider your best hire while you work there. Well, uh, I felt I had to get a job, and I went through being rejected at Time, Life, Newsweek, everywhere. And my mother again met met a woman in a the House of Chan Chinese restaurant on Broadway, closed now, unfortunately. And she met another woman who was a neighbor who had a son who was working for this company that put out these adventure magazines and confession magazines. And so maybe your son can meet my son. So I was hired up there. And before I knew it, I was editor of four magazines, Male Men, Man's World, and my favorite, which was True Action as opposed to False Action, you know. And again, to address your question, well, I had to buy, oh, I think about 60 or 70 stories a month. That's a lot. So I I needed people who were not only editors but also writers. Two people came up for the one job I had. One was Arthur Kretschmer, who went on to become editor of Playboy for many decades, and the other was Mario Puzo. So I'd read a book of his called The Dark Arena, which in truth uh, really didn't... Um, have what I considered any forward motion, any narrative uh, drive. Uh, he claims he learned that at magazine management. This was pre-Godfather, correct? <laughs> well, during, because uh, I hired him in 1960. I can still hear his voice saying, you mean it? You know, like Sally Fields. <laughs> you really mean it? Because he never had a what he called the straight job before. He did something a little naughty uh, before then. Um but in 1963, I can't resist telling this story, he approached me sheepishly. He said he was uh, working on a novel, and what did I think of the title? He, I wanted, he wanted to try it. He said, I'm thinking of calling it The Godfather. And I said, well, truthfully, it doesn't really do much for me, you know. It sounds <laughs> domestic. Who wants to read that, you know, like that? I would take another shot at it. <laughs> so he gave, he's a little fat man. <laughs> and he gave me a look of uh, that you would not want to see, a look of steel, uh, which actually contradicted all his denials about not being connected to the mafia. It was terrifying. <laughs> um, and the funny part is I would have been right for any other book about The Godfather. It was a boring title. <laughs> so you stand by, by <laughs> Well, that I mean, for any other book, it would have been just a title. But it was it's a perfect title for this book. So one thing I noticed when I was reading the memoir is that you have this way of writing with great affection, but also what appears to be brutal honesty about people. 
Um, I'm thinking of the way you write about Norman Mailer, for instance. And um, I found it refreshing and wonderful. And I'm wondering if it's ever gotten you into any trouble to write about real people like that. Well, I've done more worrying about it than it was (laughs) – I get asked that question. Oh, weren't you worried? I'm I'm trying to write a book, but I'm sick because my girlfriend might read it. You know, those questions that people ask themselves. Um, Yeah, that's – I worry about it, but it never pans out or rarely pans out. Quick example on Stern, which you mentioned before. I used my boss as a character, a secondary character. Um, I had a job. I had three young children. I wasn't even 30 at the time. I was in my 20s. I needed the job. And I thought, well, if he recognizes himself, I'll get fired. Uh, That's all. What what am I going to do? Um, so I disguised him in every possible way. I think I made him an Eskimo, I forget what, but uh, or a Dutch housewife, whatever I did, I forget. But it's impossible to recognize him. So sure enough, he spotted himself, and he gave me a raise. Uh, he was so <laughs> delighted to have someone in his company who's now showing up in Time magazine and getting reviewed here, you know, all over the place. So that was a, just you know, a wasted worry, you know. I got I sort of friendly with James uh, Salter. He's really Wonderful a great writer. guy, and he wrote something which I thought was what out of character. How did he know about that? Whatever, and he said something I remembered. How could you, you know, put yourself in that position or write from that point of view? He said, "Oh, Bruce, it's just writing." <laughs> <laughs> and I love Joe Joe Heller's response to Erica Heller too, which. Uh, was in one of the reviews when she said about my favorite book of his, uh, Something Happened, uh, Dad, how could you write these things about me, Uh, your own daughter? And he said, well, what makes you think you're important enough to be written about? (laughs) Those are my feelings. (laughs) What are you working on now? Well, would you believe I'm working on not one but three books are in the pipeline? They're not official books, meaning one, there's still work to be done on Lucky Bruce. And <clears throat> and then there's a collection of plays called 3.1 by BJF. Uh, it's not all my plays, but it's the ones they could fit into this volume. And then I've been putting together a collection for next year, which would be a novella set in Jerusalem that I kind of like, called The Peace Process. It's an ironic title in terms of what the content is, plus another uh, seven or eight uh, short stories that have never been collected but published. Can you tell us a little bit about what the content of the peace process is? Yeah. Uh, well, I spent some time in Jerusalem, not enough time. But I had a peculiar uh, experience. There was a an Israeli Arab working in room service, for some reason, attached himself to me and thought I was a man of influence. Where he got that idea, I don't know. (laughs) And he thought that somehow I could either get him out 
or smuggle him out of Israel so he could attend his brother's wedding in Kew Gardens. You can do it, Mr. Friedman. And that was the springboard uh, for this novel. I like it a lot in terms of what happens and the twists and turns. I don't know if line by line it's as good as I want it to be, so I'm working on that. Um, so there's plenty of work to do. I'm as busy now. I'm a little slower. Uh, just the fact I don't get around as well. Um, but I probably do. I probably have more work to do than I ever had. And the trick is whether I have enough time to really get to it. You know, at one time as a kid, I wondered how will I be able to quote fill up a, an entire story, and I was amazed by writers who knew enough to actually write a book, no matter what was in it. It was an amazing feat to me. I admired those people the way kids uh, look up to rock stars now and Derek Jeter. To me, he was a writer, you know. Uh, not so much what he said or thought, but the way he dressed, the way he smoked, the way he looked off in the distance thoughtfully. That's what I wanted to be. <laughs> Bruce J. Friedman, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Bruce J. Friedman's new memoir is called Lucky Bruce. It's just out from Biblioasis. You can find more of his writing on our site, tabletmag.com. Fox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Ellen Umansky. Sarah Ivory will be back next week. <laughs>